You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. St. Augustine, converts to Christianity have taken St. Peter's admonition to, quote, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, to include, among other things, the stories of their conversion. Autobiography and memoir as genres essentially begin with Augustine's own story of conversion and the confessions, and spiritual autobiography remains a remarkably popular genre, even when the specifics of the narratives don't look that much like Augustine's. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is Abigail Ryan Falale, the director of the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University. She's recently published her own memoir of conversion. It's called Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion, and it's out now from Whiff and Stock. The lady that's brought her on the show today. How are you, Abigail? I'm doing well. It's good to be here with you. Well, I don't want to spend the whole show just going over the story of your conversion, if only because I want to give listeners a good reason to buy your book for themselves, which they should. <laughs> okay. So I, I want to talk mostly about your relationship with particular ideas inside and outside the Catholic Church, but I do think it'd be good to give the broad strokes of your memoir sure. here at the outset. When did you convert to Catholicism? What did you convert from and why did you convert? Okay. Um, well, I became Catholic. I, I formally entered the church in Easter of 2014, um, so not quite five years ago. And at the time, I was coming from, it's hard to really put a label on it, but I would probably call it um, a kind of postmodern Christian feminism, I suppose, um, a postmodern feminist kind of Christianity. Um, and I was raised evangelical. So that's sort of the, the sketch of my spiritual journey is from birthright evangelicalism, then to kind of a postmodern Christianity and then um, Catholicism. And was, did you ask why did I convert? Yeah, which I know is a, a, a tricky <laughs> subject to answer given yeah, the yeah. book. Um, I, well, I mean, the, it's hard to give a short answer. Yeah, but I think I had kind of reached a point of in some ways, um, great spiritual malaise and desperation. And I think I, I reached a point where I was either going to leave Christianity altogether. Um, and then at that point, I sort of suddenly became Catholic. And uh, I'll leave it at that. And if you want to hear more why and what the circumstances were at the particular time, then you can read the book. It's one of the most unusual conversion stories I've ever heard. In fact, if the book yeah. hadn't had Catholic conversion in the subtitle, I think most people reading it would assume the book was going to be about your conversion away from Christianity altogether. So you're moving mm -hmm. in this direction away mm -hmm. from Christianity, and all of a sudden there's just a 180-degree turn. Yeah, I know. It's bizarre. <laughs> it really is, yeah. Well, that's what makes it, I mean, one of the things that makes it an interesting story to, to read and to tell, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I also want to talk a little bit about the structure of your book. Uh, you have an interlude where you talk about the importance of the confessions, the Augustine's mm -hmm. confessions. Uh, and in fact, I think this has a, a fairly similar structure to the confessions. It starts mm -hmm. off with more or less straightforward memoir. And then toward the end, it veers off into some philosophical and theological reflection. Mm -hmm. I assume that was a conscious decision on your part. Uh, what, uh, in what ways did you see yourself as imitating Augustine's structure? 
Well, I think, okay, so it was a conscious decision, but it wasn't a conscious decision to imitate that structure. But basically, the first part of my my story kind of follows a narrative line, so it's easier to put it in narrative form. But when the latter part of the book really covers more of a, the intellectual and spiritual upheaval that I went through after I joined the Catholic Church, and that doesn't have a straightforward narrative trajectory, but it's uh, it was sort of this time, this like two-year period of wrestling with these questions and so I struggled how to, I couldn't write that in the same way that I wrote the first part. Um, and then, so it was one of these things where I wrote it, and then in retrospect, I could see how it, that I did see a lot of similarities between sort of my own, even just my story and my experiences um, with Augustine in terms of, um, I read about this in the interlude, right, that we we both were sort of grew up kind of in a Christian context and then were attracted to a certain kind of philosophical ideology in our twenties. And then after much sort of struggle and angst, um, became Catholic in our 31st year or 30th year. So there are similarities, but I didn't go out thinking I want to structure this like the confessions. It just, I had to tell the story that way for it to be coherent. If that makes sense. Uh-huh. And our listeners should, should know that the last few chapters of this book are much easier to, uh, to read than the last few chapters of the yeah. confessions. Nobody will be <laughs> skip, tempted That's to skip good. them. <laughs> yes, yes. I would say that they're more, I mean, it still, it still has that kind of memoir feel, but yeah, it's, it's kind of diving deep into, and basically the theological struggles I had in becoming Catholic, the questions I had to wrestle with. You know, I don't, I don't really go... Um, hugely into, you know, philosophy of memory or metaphysics <laughs> or things like that. But. Gabriel Marcel, uh, five years after his conversion, talks about being imperfectly converted. And that's what those uh, that's what those last chapters made me think of. Mm. Uh, the, 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 this notion that yeah, well, a conversion has happened, but, uh, you know, it's not like interiorly. Uh, internally, you have completely turned around. It's like you've made the first steps, which is a, a very unevangelical attitude toward conversion. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. The moment for me, like becoming Catholic was really the beginning of what I would call the, the real conversion, which was much more intense and disorienting and lengthy. You know, it happened really, mo the most intense parts were kind of over a year, but um, certainly extending into kind of a two-year period. But also, interestingly, more explicable, right? I mean, because your first conversion, as we, we talked about, happened so quickly and so unexpectedly. Yeah. And then these other ones are like your mind being converted as opposed to your heart, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, again, this, this really seems like kind of a double conversion to me in the sense that, first of all, you're converting from what you call your birthright evangelicalism, and then also you're, you're converting from a kind of academic postmodern feminism. Mm -hmm. We'll get to the feminism in a minute. I definitely want to talk about evangelicalism, though. Uh, mm -hmm. Your first chapter is essentially about evangelical soteriology. You, you tell the story about how you were saved at the age of three, and, you know, put your, put your uh, ghost quotes around saved. But, mm -hmm. but you had this massive amount of anxiety about your salvation for years. I wrote in the in the margins, uh, Abigail, you were one you were one neurotic kid because you were just so <laughs> you were so flipped out about uh, about whether or not you were saved. Mm -hmm. What is it in evangelicalism that promotes that anxiety? Because I do not think that you're the only one who's felt that way. Uh, well, I think I think for me, um, it. 
I think what I was experiencing, you know, like it makes a lot, makes a lot of sense for me in a Catholic framework, which is that there's an ongoing need for reconciliation and restoration with one's relationship with Christ. And so um, I think as a child, it wasn't so much about say like, oh, I was doing these terrible things, right? It was more just, it seemed, it seemed so easy. And because it was so focused on this one particular prayer, I think I was afraid of not having said the prayer right. And this usually was like in the, in the dead of night when I'm laying awake in bed and I'm suddenly thinking like, oh my gosh, like, am I, am I saved? How do I know? I better just say the prayer again, just to make sure and hope I'm saying it right. Um, and then, and then also being, I think anxious about people who had never had a chance to say that prayer and how it sort of seemed a little um, arbitrary. You know, I worried about uh, people who'd never had a chance to hear the gospel and, you know, died before they could say the prayer. Was that just sort of it? You know, this, it seemed to be the only, the only kind of gateway. Um, and then I think from a Catholic perspective, um, it makes I think what was really at root was this kind of desire, you know, in my teenage years, it was more about like recommitting myself to Christ or getting like rebaptized. You know, I was sort of trying to grab hold of these little ad hoc rituals to kind of reconcile myself with Christ after a period of disruption or lapse. Um, and as it turns out, there's a sacrament for that. So um, that's been really great <laughs> to have in, in Catholicism. I found myself thinking about the role of sincerity in evangelical soteriology, and I, I wonder if maybe that's part of what you were struggling with. This, this, I mean, when you're saved at three years old, uh, how sincere can you be about it if you don't understand it? So you, you have on the, the one hand this notion that you have to understand what's happening, and the other hand, you, you have to really mean it. And I mean, good Lord, especially when you're a teenager, how does anybody know that they really mean anything? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, in a way, I remember I remember having a pretty sincere faith as a as a kid. Um, so I'm not so sure as about sincerity. I do think as I got a little bit older, like maybe an adolescent, I I did have some anxiety about having a conversion that I couldn't remember because mm -hmm. I couldn't actually remember saying um, the Jesus prayer when I was three. It was this kind of story that had been told to me. And so many of the testimonies that I'd hear would be about, you know, there was this pre-Christian time in my life, then I found Jesus, then I was saved, and there was this radical change, and I didn't have that. Um, so that, I think, sometimes I felt pressure, you know, in kind of the, I don't know, the fire circle at, at camp to um, juice up my my testimony a little bit, because it was pretty boring, you know, until I got in high school, then, you know, I, I started making some choices that made my testimony more interesting, but... Um, when I was, was a kid anyway, it wasn't, yeah. Yeah, sorry, what were you going to say? I said not that that was your motivation. No, that was not my motivation, not my primary motivation. Not sure. Uh, another problem with evangelicalism, at least of the vintage that you and I grew up with, I think we're about the same age, uh, is its emphasis on so-called purity culture. Our listeners will probably, many of them, have read your essays about purity culture and first things. And so uh, you also devote a, a pretty uh, good deal of space to them here as well. What, what are we talking about when we talk about purity culture and what is so noxious about it? Um, well, you know, purity culture refers to that, um, I think, uh, in, in evangelical subculture, this 
trend arising, you know, in the eighties, but primarily I think in the nineties that, that really emphasized, um, metaphors and the language of purity when talking about sexuality. Um, and so you might think of the true love waits campaign. Um, you might think of I kiss dating goodbye, that bestseller by Joshua Harris. Um, you, you might think of the, the strange sort of purity ball things that I never experienced. I only sort of read about later, so I don't think they're quite as widespread, but certainly like wearing a purity ring, signing a purity pledge and, uh, and then encountering in Christian contexts, like at camp, at youth group, at college, um, the kind of what I would call maybe like kind of a little bit of fear mongering tactics of incentivizing teenagers not to have sex um, that really leaned into the purity metaphor. So that if you have sex, then you're impure, you're damaged goods, you can't really come back from that. Um, you're, and that's really, I think, what's what's harmful about it, because it, it gives this this really unchristian trajectory of the spiritual life where you have this, you begin in a state of purity. And then if you make sinful choices, you become impure and you can't really come back from that. At least when it comes to sexuality, it's something that you've sort of lost and you can't regain. And that's really antithetical, I think, to um, the Christian theology of sin and grace, which is almost the opposite trajectory, right? We have this impurity or, you know, the state of sin that we're all in. And then, you know, through grace, we come out of that into a kind of restoration. So it's almost the exact opposite kind of a trajectory. It's, and it's very strange for evangelicalism because evangelicalism is supposedly about um, it, it's supposedly uh, completely opposed to works righteousness. So, right. so everything is mm. imputed to you except for this thing. Mm. Of course, yeah. it's very gendered. Yes. Yes, I think so. Because one of, one of the other things I've kind of noticed um, in my own experiences was that for, for women, the stakes were higher. Um, I think the, the purity and virginity really mattered more. And so sometimes the language around, um, men, you know, ha would be like, they would stumble. So the language would almost be behavioral, right? Like kind of making a mistake or making an error or stumbling. Whereas for women, it was much more like a, a total shift in one's being that was really hard to come back from. Um, and that, yeah, that really shaped my spirituality big time in my in my 20s. You, you talk about, I mean, one of the hallmarks of purity culture is the metaphors that youth pastors mm -hmm. and other people use. You, you talk about one with a dress being dipped in. Is it blood mm -hmm. or just red paint? Oh, it was, it was, uh, okay, so here, this was told to me while I was a, a student at a Christian college. So one of my, and this is the thing, it's not, it's not so much that it, it, did, it didn't necessarily come from like, Oh, my parents or just pastors. It was like endemic. It was just in the water. Right. So I think this was actually a classmate who said this. It wasn't even necessarily a, a person in authority, but it was something like, um, oh, yeah. Imagine yourself on your wedding day in this beautiful white dress, you know, da, 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 da. OK, so we're imagining this now. Imagine a bright red handprint anywhere a guy has touched you. Right. So it could be any sort of red liquid you like, I suppose. But there is kind of something very bloody about the image. Um, yeah, so that was one of the, one of the ones that really struck me, you know, and this was in college. So by that time I, you know, had long since lost my virginity. And so I was coming into a context where I was hearing all these things and, the, you know, the ship had already sailed for me. And so it was, I was having to sort of grapple with these, um, these kind of damaged good metaphors as someone who was damaged. 
one of my students, we were talking about purity culture last semester, and, and she said that the one she got was, you have to imagine your heart is cut out of construction paper, and every time you kiss a boy, it cuts off a piece of it. And every time, you know, you, and then if you go all the way, of course, it's just ripped up and thrown away. Yeah. What an absurd, what, looking back on that, what an absurd way to talk about sexuality. Yeah, you know, and I think it, it really, it really has, um, yeah, it has a real damaging impact, I think, on a lot of young women. So is it, is it widespread in Catholic culture? I don't think so. Um, but I don't have a strong sense of that, right, because I didn't grow up as a young person in the church. You know, I've talked with some Catholics about it, and I think it's there a little bit. I think um, it's kind of kind of come in, you know, through the side door a little but what I hear more in Catholic circles is an emphasis on chastity as an active virtue right. rather than virginity, which I think is a much more helpful way of thinking about it, because then it's about, you know, one's behavior and choices in the here and now. It's not something that you have and then lose. It's something that you actively cultivate and it's lifelong, right? Whether you're married, you're single, whatever your your marital state or your sexual history, you can be chaste. In, in in the moment. And so um, that's, I found, a very help, more helpful model. Coming from that environment, you felt that feminism, it was a Christian feminism at first, but then a kind of generically postmodern feminism. You felt that it rescued you from some of the abuses of purity culture. What did feminism have to offer you in college? Uh, I think... I think what initially drew me to feminism was a sincere desire to have my dignity as a woman affirmed and um, explained uh, and to have some kind of theological meaning to it. So um, where I first discovered Christian feminism because I was in I was in a New Testament class and we were doing First Corinthians um, and we I think it's in First Corinthians 10, maybe or 11. Um, that passage where, you know, it says something like woman is the glory of man and man is the glory of God. And I remember reading that and thinking, huh, this seems strange. It seems to sort of put woman at a distance from God where, um, you know, kind of almost have this implied spiritual inferiority. And so I remember I asked the the professor about it and he didn't really have an answer. And that really bothered me. Um, not that, that really bothered me, that question, like I had to figure this out. Right. And so that's when I discovered feminist biblical criticism, feminist theologians who were kind of writing and explaining those kind of troubling passages related to gender. And, um, and so as soon as I stumbled upon that, I just kind of wholeheartedly embraced it because it, it seemed to be meeting this question, um, about what it, what it means to be a woman in a Christian context in a way that was positive, that um, affirmed a woman's value. Uh, and so that's where I first first encountered feminism. How did it lead you to atheism? Or close to atheism? I don't yeah, know if yeah. you ever called yourself that. No, I don't think, I, I mean, I think I would kind of like have moments of atheism, but it never really stuck. Um, I think it would, it was just, it was much more like undefined and ambiguous, I think. Uh, well, I think when I, I, I discovered feminism and at first it helped me understand my Christian faith better. It helped me grow in my faith better. Um, and then at some point it shifted. And I think that was, um, not necessarily a particular moment, but I think it was, 
um, going deeper into a worldview that was primarily about feminism and not primarily about Christianity, if that makes sense. So I think at first I was encountering feminism from a Christian foundation, and then eventually it kind of flipped. Um, and at first I was reading feminism that seemed to want to really uh, seem to take Christian faith seriously. It was more sort of evangelical feminism, egalitarian feminism. Uh, but then the more feminist sources I read, the more I was entering into a paradigm that was much more about suspicion, uh, that didn't seem to necessarily take the divine authority of Christian tradition or scripture seriously, but saw it as kind of inherently flawed, inherently patriarchal, and in need of either complete rehabilitation or dismantling. Um, but I really think what the, the shift happened when I adopted a hermeneutics of suspicion toward Christianity, because one cannot love or worship a God that one is suspicious of, right? You can't be sort of suspicious and trusting at the same, at the same time. It's just a very, a very different kind of spiritual attitude. And so I, I think um, not intentionally or consciously, but that the more I kind of went into feminism and let that become my worldview, the more I was sort of suspicious and angry, I think, especially toward Christianity and the Bible. Um, and then that began to erode my, my faith. I, I like the use of hermeneutics of suspicion, because I mean, that's, that's Paul Ricoeur's phrase, and his op mm -hmm. the opposite of that is the hermeneutics of faith. Mm -hmm. So I yeah. mean, it, it makes total yeah. sense that you can't you mm -hmm. can't have both of those, right? And it, you know, I and I didn't and I didn't realize that. Like I didn't realize the bargain I was making. You know, I didn't realize the transaction that was happening when I adopted that suspicion. Um, I didn't realize that I was sort of moving in a direction that would make it almost impossible to have faith. I'm always there. Are, there are Christians, and I'm sure there's people listening to this. So I, I hope nobody takes it personally. But there are Christians, I actually heard the phrase, uh, I learned more about my faith from Nietzsche than from the Bible. And and I, 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 there are things I appreciate about Nietzsche, but the notion that you can follow him into a Christianity, I just don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it really matters where, I guess, where one's first principles lie, right? Like where are you fundamentally, like what ground are you fundamentally standing on, right? Because if you're, if you're fundamentally standing on kind of Christian premises, then you can read almost anything, I think, and, um, you know, fruitfully engage with that in a certain way. And I think there's a, a way that feminism can be encountered and addressed from that vantage point. But I think what happened to me is that I swapped out kind of some first principles for different first principles. And, you know, I kind of moved into a worldview where there, there wasn't a kind of stable religious authority. You know, I kind of moved into this worldview, especially in graduate school, um, where a, a kind of postmodern, post-structuralist worldview was assumed. It wasn't even explicitly stated, but it was just, that was what, that was how we read. That was how we learn, we learn from that vantage point that there is no meaning except what is linguistically and culturally constructed by human beings, right? So that wasn't, I didn't decide to begin to see the world that way. I just sort of was ushered into seeing the world that way. And I don't think it's possible 
to really take Christianity seriously or divine revelation seriously from a lens where, you know, meaning is only ever created by human beings instead of discovered by human beings. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking a lot about that the last year or so, the, this this notion of metaphysical realism versus nominalism. Mm -hmm. Do do the things in the world have meaning for any reason other than we say they do? And if it's only because we say they do, why are we not just calling it what it is, which is nihilism? Right, exactly. They, they have no meaning. Right, right. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, it was actually um, reading Roger Lundin's book and hearing your interview with him. So, a, you know, a couple of years ago when I was really beginning to put this together um, in a new way. And I remember reading his book. What's it called now? Beginning with the Word. Yes, Beginning with the Word. Thank you. I read that and I thought, oh, I wish I had read this during or before graduate school. You know, and I recommend it to my students who are going into graduate school all the time because I want them to be savvy and conscious about the worldview assumptions that are operating all the time, but mostly implicitly, especially in kind of a secular academic context. You so know, that I, was, I struggled with that book when I read it. I need to go back and look at it now that I'm a little more receptive to to anti-postmodern arguments. Hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I, thought it was, I mean, it was tough, but it was really good. It's really good. As I read your comments on your previous brand of feminism, I started to get the feeling that postmodern feminism, at least the sort that you practiced, is really a kind of idealism and that it begins with what the world ought to be and kind of projects that onto the world as it is. Now, I tend to see that in everything. I tend to project that on everything because that's the subject <laughs> of my John Updike book. But I wonder if you think that's an accurate description. Huh, okay, so beginning with this ideal and then projecting it onto the world. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're saying? That, I mean, I think that might be a helpful way of thinking about it because one of the things that began to frustrate me about feminism is that it seemed like it was a narrative or a worldview that was always, like always assumed and always happening, right? So I could read everything in terms of, you know, power disparities between men and women. And it also seemed like it was never really updated, right? So even, you know, even with so many advances that have happened for women, especially in Western countries, there still is this almost sense in mainstream feminism of like desperation and this sense that women are always, no matter what the situation, women are always, always oppressed. And that seems pretty simplistic and it does seem it does seem like it's, it's not some, I don't know. I don't know if I'm articulating myself very well, but um, it seemed like it was always true, no matter what the actual data of a given situation suggested, right? You could always read something or interpret something in order to affirm the same conclusion, right? It just seemed like I was always reading a text and churning out the same conclusion. I was always reading my interactions with people or the world or the news and churning out the same conclusions. There didn't seem to be any um, updates to the narrative. But we're all subject to that, right? I mean, any that, that that's kind of what an ideology is. But yeah. I, I just, I guess when you're a hammer, the whole world's a nail because I, I started to think about that. Uh, ironically, I think I'm performing the action I'm criticizing. 
Uh, Later in your book, you have a pretty good takedown of sola scriptura, which is one of the most fundamental doctrines of Protestantism and especially evangelical Protestantism. Uh, One of the interesting things you have to say about that is that when you were a liberal feminist Protestant, you were still more or less operating on the basis of sola scriptura. I think Nadia Bowles-Weber or whoever would be pretty horrified to hear that. Um, Well, I think the question is, okay, so... Okay, so you're saying that when I was a feminist, I was operating in a... I think more what I was trying to say was that when I when I was a postmodern feminist, I saw myself as the final religious authority. Because that's what I think a sola scriptura position eventually leads to, because the text itself, the Bible, cannot um, interpret itself, right? So to say that scripture is the only authority... What you're really sort of saying, I mean, it has to be like, well, which, whose interpretation of scripture, right? And then there isn't really an answer beyond the individual in that perspective, because there is no sense of the church as a visible interpretive authority or an interpretive tradition. And so I guess what I mean is that when I was in this kind of postmodern feminist mode, I was reading the Bible. And as long as I could make an argument that was supported by scripture, I kind of saw myself in, you know, it was fair game, right? So it wasn't, even if it was a very sort of heterodox argument, if I could justify it through scripture, then I was still sort of within the bounds and I could still consider myself a Christian. I could still consider it a Christian argument. So I think in, in some ways, the sola scriptura perspective lends itself really well to postmodernism um, because you have the individual who's making the interpretation, who's making the meaning out of the text. And we're back to that nominalism question, right? Yeah. So the, the scripture becomes super important for Protestants, and yet scripture, they would never say it this way. Scripture doesn't mean anything except what you want it to mean. I mean, some of them would. I, I think Nadia Bolsweber basically says something close to that in a, in a recent interview. But I, I think most evangelicals wouldn't say that. And yet, uh, isn't that what they mean? Uh, yeah, I don't think they would say that. I don't know. I mean, that's for me. I mean, it's hard for me. You know, like I said, like that's the kind of Achilles heel of Protestantism for me now is that there is no sort of interpretive authority. And so then sola scriptura kind of becomes this, just open playground of meaning, really. You, you know the joke the Eastern Orthodox tell about Protestants, right? They, I don't know. They got rid of the Pope to install a million little popes. I heard that Calvin actually said that. Oh, I did read he? somewhere that Calvin said, you know, I got rid of the Pope and now I have 10,000 of them because he was annoyed that, you know, a lot of his followers were interpreting things um, differently than he thought he should have interpreted. I don't know if that's true, but I just remember hearing that. So I've heard that, I've heard that idea. It's and interesting. It's true. I think, I think that, you know, when I think about, I think I use this phrase in my, in my book that I had kind of become a magisterium of one, you know, I had, I had excerpted myself from any kind of sense of Christian history or tradition. And with, with kind of a postmodern sensibility, um, I was then sort of, able to kind of construct a Christianity of my own making. Um, but it just turns out that it wasn't very compelling. Yeah. It's, it's boring in a way, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm a pretty creative person, but, um, 
I'm not as, uh, yeah, there's nothing I could cook up that's as close to compelling as the real thing. I guess, I guess I'm interested in this because when a person is a conservative evangelical, they're, they're often apt to oppose what they're doing, the good thing, to liberal Protestantism. Uh, and, and it's interesting to see a Catholic come in, look at it and say, well, really, aren't you both doing kind of the same thing? Well, I mean, I think, I think what maybe distinguishes uh, an evangelical perspective from just sort of a liberal Protestant perspective um, would be that I think the authority of scripture is taken a little bit more seriously, you know, I, and that, and also a sense of orthodoxy, even though that might be defined in different ways. So I still think there's a little more of a sense that, you know, one needs to be accountable to some of the plain speaking of scripture and, you know, taking the spiritual dimensions seriously, right? Because from, you know, there were times when I, in my kind of most sort of liberal years where I, just, I didn't know if the virgin birth was really something that had happened. I didn't know if the resurrection actually happened. But you're going to be hard pressed to find an evangelical who would say that, right? Because they still, they take the Bible seriously in terms of its ability to be divine revelation. And the kind of, there are at least some fundamentals of the faith that are taken for granted and unquestioned, like Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, died for our sins, rose from the dead, that sort of thing. But they're also apt, some evangelicals, I mean, there's no governing body for evangelicals, so it's hard to talk about what, quote unquote, they think. But uh, some of them are also apt to add a whole bunch of other stuff on there that doesn't really have anything to do with the historic church. So I was listening to a, it was a Eastern Orthodox call-in program hosted by this guy, Father Evan, and he was, he's cradle Orthodox, and now he's a priest, obviously, which is why his name is Father. And uh, he, he said he, he once had a conversation with an evangelical Protestant, and they, he, the, the Protestant said something like, uh, you, you know, well, as long as you believe in the rapture, you're okay by me. And, and Father Evan, being Orthodox, had never even heard of the rapture. Like, this right. is this is right. not a historic church doctrine. And when he told mm -hmm. him that, the guy said, well, you must not be a Christian. And, and so that's, that's very interesting to me, because on the, on the one hand, you have this conservative evangelical reliance on a kind of... Uh, Mere Christianity, right? That's that's mm -hmm. Lewis's term. It's a nice way to put it. But on the other hand, all this other stuff gets added to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it, yeah, it certainly depends on the specific sort of non-denominational denomination, <laughs> what, what those sort of things are. What, a phrase I hear a lot in evangelical circles is, you know, um, Unity on the essentials and on the non-essentials, you know, freedom. But then, of course, the question is, well, what's an essential and what's a non-essential, right? And who makes that that distinction? Um, I mean, I'm pretty lucky to. I mean, I work in I work at an evangelical university right now, and and I I really love it. I find it, um, you know, I, I mean, the evangelicals here are very very sincere, very intelligent, very ecumenical in terms of um, respect for different Christian traditions. I think in general, evangelicalism tends to be pretty ahistorical and atheological, um, but in a university setting, you know, it won't be it won't be quite like that. That's true. But in my my upbringing, it certainly was. Yeah, and my, mine too. And, and you're right. I mean, the, my students don't seem as much like that as I did when I was 18, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm not being fair. <laughs> 
You write, uh, when I finally encountered the totality of the Christian sacramental cosmos and pitched my tent under its sacred canopy, my feminist angst faded away, as did my need for feminism itself. The yearning that initially drove me to feminism was fulfilled at last in Catholicism. Feminism is such a sticky issue in 2019. In my eyes, it's become almost compulsory, especially for women online. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's still a sense in which you'd identify as a feminist. That's a great question. I don't know, honestly. It's something I ask myself a lot. I think, I think in general, my instinct is no, um, but it's not because I'm an anti-feminist. I think it's just that I, I think that the, the label Catholic for me is more, it covers, it encompasses what I would want to to grab from feminism and then it also includes a lot of things that feminism either rejects or simply doesn't address um but i i suppose i've i've just kind of lost my um desire to label or really strongly affiliate myself with contemporary american feminism because there are ways in which it does overlap with some of the things i deeply believe um, but there are also some ways in which it really doesn't. And so it, it has become something of a misnomer, I think. Um, but I'm certainly not an anti-feminist, and I'm still very much an anti-misogynist. And so I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I suppose I'm, I'm still, I'm still friends with feminism, but I don't know that I would, I would really cling to that label anymore. Pop cultural feminism is so interesting because there's a, a Mott and Bailey fallacy that takes place a lot. You have people say, well, feminism just means that you think women are people, which is the mm -hmm. broadest possible definition of right. feminism. But then right. as soon as you declare yourself one, there's this whole list of things you have to check off or you're sure. a bad feminist or not a feminist. Right. I'm just interested in the cultural dominance <laughs> of this idea. And you seem like a good person who kind of exists in it and, and kind of doesn't. Right. Well, I think at the very, I mean, even if you want to have the most basic definition of feminism possible, you have to go a step further from just believing that women are human or believing in inequality. You have to take, there's a second part to it that's essential. And that would be the belief that there are significant obstacles to that equality that exists in society. And, you know, maybe even the third step, which is some kind of, there has to be some kind of activist you know, you know, strain to it, right? You can't just sort of be, you know, kind of an armchair feminist and hold this abstract idea of equality. Um, so I think you would have to believe in equality or whatever, however you construe that, right? Or the common humanity of men and women, but also absolutely that there are significant forces in society that are undermining that equality. Um, and then this kind of desire to respond to that. So even, even the most basic definition of feminism, I think would have to include those components. But then once you get beyond that, that's where it becomes really, really sort of sticky. And, you know, I, I might not, I might even agree with those things. I think the significant forces undermining that equality. I don't know that I would say that's still true in 21st century America. I think that's definitely still true in a lot of parts of the world. Um, I think that there are um, there are, is very real oppression that women around the world are facing. Um, but I, you know, I honestly don't see 21st century America as a place where women are oppressed by and large as a collective, as a group. Without redefining what oppression means. Yeah. To I mean, yeah, I just, I honestly don't think that, that women are oppressed in 21st century America. Like, you know, to use, if, if you're going to use the word oppression 
in, in a, in a way that actually means something significant. Um, yeah. So maybe that means then I, I wouldn't, I shouldn't call myself a feminism, but some of my ambivalence comes from not so much that, but more, I think the, and this is where actually my, you know, when I was, you know, when my academic specialty in feminism was in fem, uh, French feminist theory, especially Lucy Rigore, and she's something of a dissenting feminist. So even when I, I was a good academic feminist, I still was kind of a weirdo because I, I've always taken sexual difference pretty seriously. You call and, yourself a closet essentialist. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and also I think she, she is rightly critical of most kinds of Anglo-American feminism that seem to adopt a masculine um, model of values and then measure a, a woman's well-being or success based on more of a masculine model rather than really thinking kind of from the ground up what a society would look like that takes um, sexual difference seriously. And I still agree with that. I think that's so. And, and I still am an Arigarain in many ways even though I don't, I'm not so much a, a postmodernist or post-structuralist anymore. You must like uh, Sixu as well. I do. I do. <laughs> I like Sixu. I like Arigure. Uh, I like Arigure more. Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think about, I know I've read a, an Arigure essay, but I don't know it well. I know Sixu better, but I'm not mm -hmm. an academic feminist, so I, I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll bow to you here. Have you experienced any blowback from feminists over what they must see as the retrograde gender ideas in this book? Uh, not yet, but it just came out. Um, I mean, I think when I, when I went through the conversion, the, the only real kind of negative reactions I got were from feminist friends and acquaintances who seemed really weirded out, but, uh, that I became Catholic or that I became pro-life. Actually it was, it's the pro-life thing that's, that's, um, gotten the most, it's funny. I would have thought maybe woman's ordination, right? Like, Oh, how can you be Catholic because they don't ordain women. But actually what I've gotten more often is how can you be Catholic? Well, okay, you can be Catholic, but just at least don't become pro-life. You know, I've that's gotten so interesting. Yeah. So, and, and that to me is one of the reasons why I don't feel I want to take on the feminist label because in a contemporary American context to be a feminist is to be pro-choice, you know, yeah. or, and not even pro-choice so much as I would, you know, really put it like pro-abortion, like really seeing this as um, the kind of best solution for, you know, the, the problem of unwanted pregnancies and, and I just don't think that's true. And I think it's actually very harmful to women. So, um, you know, that would be, you know, even the example of the Women's March disinviting pro-life feminist groups, like that to me is, is pretty indicative of, of mainstream American feminism. And so I, I, I know there are a lot of pro-life, no, not a lot, but there are, there are a few pro-life feminists out there. And I think that's great. And I don't begrudge them, you know, using the term, but I think for myself, I just, I just have too much ambivalence about that stuff now. Yeah. I kind of feel like, you know, I've been sort of disinvited from feminism because I'm now, you know, a, a pro-life Catholic. So and I'm kind of like, OK, that's fine. <laughs> it, it's interesting how central a place abortion has in pop cultural feminism. There, there's just no yeah. way around it. It's it's absurd. Yeah. And I think it's becoming even even kind of increasingly so. It's sort of the the rallying point. You know, I mean, I wrote in, in my dissertation in my <clears throat> My first book, which was an academic book that 
I wouldn't recommend anyone read, but I did have a chapter on The Handmaid's Tale. Um, so I spent a lot of time with The Handmaid's Tale. And, you know, then now there's this hit TV show and I hear a lot of, you know, like a lot of, you know, online kind of murmuring about how we're living in The Handmaid's it's Tale. It's like looking out the mirror, out the window, and excuse me. Like, what? You know, I just, that that's where I start to think like this is almost a, you know, it begins to kind of, this is an ideology that begins to kind of inculcate a almost pathological way of thinking where if you really read The Handmaid's Tale and you think that's where you're living, you know, that there's some, there's some kind of chip missing there in terms of interpreting reality. But that's I what, just, that's what I mean by calling it an idealism. Yeah, it's, it's, you're right. Yeah. We've decided, we've decided that we live in The Handmaid's Tale. And so now yeah. Mike Pence uh, not being alone with a woman means that he wants to force birth on fertile women or whatever happens in that show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you seen the show? I have not seen the show. I haven't watched it, no. Oh, I think I've spent so many years of my life with The Handmaid's Tale that I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I just haven't I haven't brought myself to watch it. It's, and I, it's, it's a book funny. that I really loved. So that's also like, oh, I don't know if I want to see it. Um, yeah. I like Atwood a lot. Uh, and, and actually there's a, a, I think it's on Netflix, a show called Alias Grace that if you're, mm-hmm. if, if people are looking for a good, Atwood adaptation that's not kind of been taken up as as a rallying cry. I would really recommend Alias Grace, but man, I hated The Handmaid's Tale. I watched the first two or three episodes with my wife, and it was just it was just unbearable. She tells oh, me the second season is better, but yeah, well, yeah, and inter- uh, the second season I'm sure just goes completely off the grid because you know the book ends. Um, so, but I I have read and haven't seen the TV adaptation, but I've read that. The, the TV Offred, the main character, is much more active um, than the, the book character who's very sort of passive and in a way kind of goes along sort of with her, her own oppression in a really fascinating way. And so even that one change made me kind of not as interested in, in watching the show because that's one of the most interesting parts of the book about how Offred as a character is sort of both resisting and not resisting what's going on around her. So I don't know. I'm just not really into, into something that's a little less nuanced, a little less complex. I would not call it nuanced. I have not read the book, so <laughs> I, I can't compare it to that. Yeah, it looks good. Yeah, Vic, Victoria loves the book and doesn't didn't like the first season of the show, so I, I take that seriously. My least favorite chapter of your book is called The Language of the Body, and I didn't like it because mm-hmm. it made me interrogate my own position on contraception and fertility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a big step. That was the hardest chapter to write for sure. It seems like, like it was the hardest chapter beast. to live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, well, no, the hardest one to live would be the last chapter, the one that was about how this affected my marriage. That was, that was harder. I, although they're connected, of course. Right? Sure, but, sure. Um, yeah, this was the hardest one to write for sure. So how did you change your mind on birth control? Okay. Hmm. Well, I, even before I became Catholic, I was somewhat ambivalent about um, birth control as in like oral contraceptives. So I, I, I took, I took them most of my twenties and my maternal grandmother died of an estrogen related breast cancer. So I've always, I've always had an eye on the, the the risk the elevated risk for breast cancer with um, hormonal contraceptives so I always kind of thought my plan was to 
you know, stay on the pill in my twenties when I'm in grad school and then, you know, kind of stop taking it, um, and figure something else out later on, um, because I didn't want to keep, um, pumping fake hormones into my body. And when I have breast cancer, that runs in my family. So, um, so there was always, there was always already a kind of ambivalence about it, at least a sort of an awareness that I was doing something potentially harmful to my body. Um, but I didn't, it wouldn't, it didn't go so far as to the kind of conscious awareness that I was chemically disrupting my natural processes, um, in order to make one of my biological systems intentionally malfunction. So that's not something that I really began to realize until, uh, I started reading more Catholic critiques of, of contraception. Um, so I, I was already, even before I became Catholic, I was interested in fertility awareness methods and I had learned how to chart my cycle. And, um, I saw this as kind of an extension of my sort of weird feminist tendencies. Like, Oh, I really want to know how my, my body works and figure that out. And so I was already open to that sort of idea. Um, and then when, when I began to read the theology that really supported that and filled that out, I, um, I found it very compelling, uh, but it was, yeah, it was still, it was still a hard transition to make in many ways, but also kind of a relief in a way. Like I don't, I think it was there, it was kind of a relief to be able to give up contraception and be told that that was okay. I don't think I'd realized how much I assumed it was kind of a compulsory thing as an adult female that you just contracept in some way. You, there's this assumption that you kind of have to make yourself sterile in order to live a kind of successful functional life. And so it was kind of a relief to, to be allowed to give that up. I had never really given much thought to how compulsory it is. And I'm, I mean, I'm not a woman, so it's, you know, I don't, I don't get as much of that, but it really does seem like society sees this normal human function, as you say, as abnormal. It's the state to be avoided. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yet, I mean, childbirth is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And so there's, I mean, there's, there's a false dichotomy, right? Between, um, you know, making oneself sterile and having these, these interventions, um, which come with certain health risks themselves. Um, and then, and which are always put on the women, I'll say too. True. <clears throat> um, and, and then the, the other side of that false dichotomy would be to just be like, well, you know, just lay back and, you know, think of England and have as many kids as you want or have as many kids as you can, or don't even think about it. Don't even try to plan or space pregnancies. Right. So, um, so I, you know, in my, in my own life, I certainly am very intentional about that, you know, and, and right now, um, my husband and I are, are trying to actively avoid having, um, getting, having another pregnancy, at least in this, in this time in our life for, for various, I think, um, good reasons. And, so I think that the distinction is that um, whereas before I would alter my physiology and my body <clears throat> in order to not have to alter my behavior, now I um, alter my behavior um, 
to act in accord with my biology and my physiology. And that seems to me the key distinction between, say, natural family planning and contraception, um, because natural family planning is still an intentional approach to childbearing and spacing births and planning births. It doesn't mean you just sort of, you know, have eight kids or whatever, or 10 or 11, um, because it, it really, I think, takes seriously that the costs of, of childbirth physically also, you know, it's one of the things I like about Catholic theology, of the body, especially from JP two, is that he really puts it at kind of the couple and the, the woman, you know, to discern how many children one should have and that it's an ongoing process of discernment. You know, it's not, it's not this pressure to, to kind of have as many kids as possible or to not think rationally or intelligently about, um, about having a child, which is a very serious decision. So, yeah. How effective is MPF? NFP? It depends on the method. There's lots of interesting methods. So um, it can be very effective. So um, if if it's used, you know, if a method, depending on the method, like the Marquette method I like, there's several peer-reviewed studies on the Marquette method, for example. And when used correctly, it's as reliable as hormonal birth control when used correctly. Wow. Yeah, really effective. So I think the the difference is, um, well, one of the benefits of NFP as well is it's not, you don't just kind of like unthinkingly sort of like take a pill that, you know, just sort of takes away your fertility or whatever. Um, but you kind of... Um, like all the time, I think you have to be sort of intentional about, um, yeah, it's, it's much more responsive to kind of bodily realities. It's not this constant state, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I, I'm aware of my cycle at a given time and how fertile or infertile I am at that time. And then that helps me choose how, choose behavior based on that reality. So um, if, if I know that I'm fertile, and my husband and I are not trying to get pregnant right now and are actively trying not to get pregnant, then we won't have sex at that time, right? So we respond to the physiological reality. Um, and I'm a kind of person that likes a lot of data, so I, I track a lot of fertility signs, you know, and there are times when you can be very conservative with it um, and to really minimize any sort of possibility of pregnancy, and then there are times when you can be a little you know, a little riskier, right? So there's so much of it just depends on, on um, your own kind of personal choices. But either way, I guess the move you would have to make is moving from seeing getting pregnant as being a disaster to mm-hmm. getting pregnant as being seen as a good thing or at least not <clears throat> a bad thing if you're not trying to. Yeah, I think the, I think the, the fundamental move is to, is, you know, in, the, in Catholic circles, we call the phrase, call the phrase openness to life. And again, that doesn't mean that you, you are always trying to get pregnant. What that means is there's this acceptance of the intrinsic connection between sex and life. And there's an ascent that happens, right? That I know that um, when I have sex, that could result in the creation of a new human being. And if that happens, I will welcome it, right? That, there's that kind of attitude toward it. That doesn't mean I'm, you know, again, trying to have as many kids as possible. But I think I have so much more of an awareness of myself as a fertile being. And I suppose the, the connection between 
sex and life that I really didn't have before. You know, I think in our, in our culture, the connection between sex and life and our popular imagination has really been severed. Um, and having that reconnected has been really profound. Um, and I, I highly recommend, I tell my students, <laughs> I tell my students this a lot. I'm like, just, just meditate on your own fertility for a while, you know, just think about it. Like think of yourself as a fertile being, right? I mean, if you, I know they're thinking about sex all the time, but you got to also have it at the forefront of your mind that sex is how we participate in the transmission of human existence. Like just at least think about that, right? Like that, that is an important part of sex that should inform how you choose to live and act in the world. That needs to be part of your decision-making process. So they probably think I'm crazy, but nonetheless, I tell them to do that. The title of that chapter, The Language of the Body, strikes me as really important because Catholicism, certainly more than any Protestant tradition I know of, it really is a religion of the body. Mm -hmm. What meaning did the incarnation take on for you as you began your move toward Catholicism? Yeah, the incarnation is is central for me. Like, absolutely. I mean, that's the, I think if there's one tether that kept me connected to Christianity through my decade of doubt, it's that. It's the incarnation. Even you know, my dissertation or my first book or whatever. I can't even remember exactly what it's called. Oh, I can look at my bookshelf. It's called Irigre Incarnation and Contemporary Women's Fiction. So the concept of incarnation there mainly as kind of a theoretical conceptual key was nonetheless um, prominent, even when I was in my most sort of secular academic feminist work. Uh, so I held on to that and, and, that's what has really drawn me more deeply and back into Christianity, especially into Catholicism. I think the, the tradition I grew up in um, really emphasized the cross and the crucifixion, um, even more so than I would say the resurrection and certainly more so than the incarnation. And, and so I think in many ways, what I've rediscovered in Catholicism has been the incarnation, having a deeply incarnational faith which is connected to the sacraments, Mary. I mean, all these things are kind of the, the wellspring of these things is the incarnation. And when you don't have the incarnation, you, know, you lose Mary, you lose the sacraments. Um, you know, in, in the, the church services of my, my youth, you didn't have the Eucharist. You just had this like 40 minute long sermon. It was, it was like the word was no longer flesh. It was just words. Right. But, but now with, with the sacraments, I mean, the incarnation is, is alive again in my own life. I have a friend who he's in RCIA and he, he works at a Christian college in the Pacific Northwest. I won't mention which one. And uh, he took, he took his students on a retreat to some center. He works in student development, so he didn't get to choose the place. Uh, and they, they took communion on the last day. And uh, the, the guy said, I can't remember if they used bread and, and grape juice. They, they used, if they did, they did. But I think they may have even used like a croissant or something. And the guy, <laughs> the guy said, this doesn't mean anything. All that means anything is your personal relationship with Jesus. And my friend, uh, my friend very angrily texted me about, uh, about the, the heresy, I think, would be a fairly good word for that. Even if, even if you're Protestant, that's, that's something close to heretical, right? It can't mean nothing. <laughs> Why do it? Well, exactly. Right. I mean, if it's just, 
if it's nothing, it means nothing. I mean, that is taking it a step further. That's something beyond even just this symbolizes something. That's actually like, it means nothing. <laughs> that's, uh, that's taking it pretty far. But even, yeah, if it, if it means nothing, then, well, what's the point? If it's just a symbol to hell with it, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> As I read through this book, and we've, we've touched on this a little bit, uh, I got the feeling that the modern world is more or less incompatible with genuine Christian practice. Uh, is that is that taking it too far? Oh, I don't know. Ask, it depends on the day. Uh, I mean, I, you know, when I hear you say that, I'm kind of like, oh, dear. But, you know, I I feel that sometimes, honestly. I think it's I, at the very least, one has to be incredibly intentional. And it is it does require swimming upstream. Yeah. You know? um, I'm but, given to a kind of Chestertonian medieval cosplay. So I, I, I recognize that like this is not a great tendency in me. Yeah. But I just think, oh, how nice it would be to have the bell ring every day and I you know. come out of the fields at noon and everybody's doing it. And you don't have to work at it. It just, you know, the structure of society is there to make you holy instead of yeah. to make you buy more toothpaste or whatever. I know. And I'm, I'm sure I romanticize that, but damn, it sounds great. <laughs> Yeah. You know. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and to be fair, I mean, I quoted O'Connor earlier, Flannery O'Connor. Um, this this was something she was unfortunately given to as well. She saw mm. she saw the modern world as being really particularly damned, uh, even even mm. over against other area eras, and it's it's not a great look, as as the young people mm. say. Yeah. And yet. I know. But here we are, you know. Yeah. So what do you do? I mean, you're obviously not recommending a complete cultural withdrawal. I'm not. No. I mean, that's not possible anyway. I mean, I guess, I suppose. I suppose it's possible, but it's not. Um, that's not what we're called to do, right? Um, so, well, I, I think I mean, one, of the, one of the nice things about Catholicism is that there's such a, a rich tradition of many kinds of practices that one can participate in, but it still requires a, an individual kind of discipline and commitment, right? Because you won't necessarily be in a community where, you know, the abbot's hitting you with a stick if you're not going to prayer or whatever, um, which is fine. You know, it's probably not a good, <laughs> a good option either. Um, but I, I think developing a rule of life is really important for me. Images are very important. You know, I, my house is starting to look like a crazy Catholic lives there because I have, you know, icons and crucifixes and, you know, sacred art all over the place. But I find that to be very important that there are these these windows into the divine reality that are, you know, constantly pulling at, at my senses. So um, I, I think anything that a kind of intentional practice that creates a sacred rhythm that makes time sacred again is really essential. And I'm better and worse at that at different times of the year. I get really good at it in the summer and then gradually worse and worse through the academic year. Like right now I'm starting to lose it a little bit. I need to get back into it. Um, so it's, yeah, it's tough and I certainly haven't mastered it, but I know that when when I'm marking the hours in the day with prayer and with practices that require my whole person, um, you know, whether that's 
kneeling or, you know, I wear a scapular, which is also kind of like a physical, so kind of a kind of a physical reminder of, of being connected to Christ or belonging to Christ. And so those sorts of things I find very helpful in going to daily mass when I can. I mean, the close, the closer I am to the sacraments, the closer I am to Christ for sure. And I need a lot of help. I'm just, you know, I wander pretty easily. So I need all these things. I need all these trappings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about prayer. You, you talk about being drawn toward liturgical forms of Christianity because of the incredible pressure in evangelicalism to produce the perfect extemporaneous <laughs> prayer. <laughs> you say it was a r real relief to have that prayer written out and to know you were praying with the history of the church. That, that really rang home with me. I've always been terrible at extemporaneous <laughs> prayer. I am very terrible at it. And I have I have a phobia about it, honestly, now. And, I, you know, I still work in an evangelical setting, so there's ample opportunities for extemporaneous prayer. And I'm always like, oh, gosh. So <laughs> just whip out the yeah, breviary. And... <laughs> I know, I know, right? So um, I'm getting a little bit better at it. You know, I'm trying to not to be self-conscious about it. But for sure, I found to, you know, praying with the words of the church, especially scripture. I mean, that's been something, a kind of practice, well, you know, when I was an evangelical, the Bible was absolutely central to my spirituality, but not, but in a different way. Now scripture is, is very much a part of my spiritual life and practice, but it's more often in prayer rather than say through, I don't know, study. Um, I think praying the words of scripture, um, that's been something that's very beautiful. I mean, I, I've loved to have that language kind of given to me rather than having to sort of generate it on my own. We're back to that sincerity thing that I see at the heart of evangelicalism, mm. this, this notion that it not only has to be eloquent, mm. you have to mean it. Yeah. So you're always looking in on yourself, trying to, trying to make sure that both you're saying the right thing and that you mean what you're saying. And of course you can't mean anything when you're examining yourself while you're saying it. Right. Right. And I, and I think that it's a, I think often liturgical forms of prayer are seen as less sincere from an evangelical perspective, because how can it be sincere if they aren't your words? You know, it's just this sort of rote thing, you know, and for sure you can use that. You can use liturgy that way. Um, but, you know, I've found it to be um, this, the kind of language and structure of liturgy when I enter into it and give myself to it has been incredibly helpful in my spiritual life for sure i like what dorothy day said about it she said it's like kissing your wife on your way out in the morning uh a lot mm -hmm. of times it, it doesn't really have anything behind it but man <laughs> when it does <clears throat> yeah <laughs> that's a great i haven't heard that before that's great i, I, I paraphrased yeah. it i'm sure it's from uh, long loneliness well and also i th i think that when i when i was an evangelical um the emotions I was having in a worship context was really important. And that was the only sort of barometer I had for whether or not God was at work or whether I was, you know, um, having a religious experience or whether the spirit was alive and active. So it's been really kind of nice to, to also enjoy it when I have these sort of times of spiritual consolation, but also not to get freaked out when it does feel dry you know, and when I, when I, when those things don't come and to realize that whether I'm feeling it or not, right, the reality is still happening. And so that has, I think has been really helpful. And I, I see that a lot in my students too. They're, they are very, 
I guess they have, they, they, they get a little anxious when they aren't having the feelings they want to have with God or in prayer or at church. And I think sometimes that can drive them away from the faith when those feelings dry up for a time. So it's been nice to move away from a paradigm that's so emotive, emotivist, I guess. Well, and the flip side to that is that they're very quick, or at least my students are, to ascribe the Holy Spirit to any positive feelings they have. Yes, yes, that's, yeah, I agree with that. That's very true. Well, you end with a very heartbreaking, beautiful chapter about your marriage. Uh, mm -hmm. Your husband, Michael, is not a Catholic or indeed a Christian. And you, you talk here about some of the difficulties the two of you have had learning to live with your faith. There are some positive signs toward the end of that chapter. He starts to pray with you and your children every night. It's been more than a year, I think, since you wrote the book. I was just wondering if anything had changed there. Yeah, <laughs> that's a huge story, you know, and it's not it's not all mine to tell. But, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Last year when I was writing this book, I was on sabbatical um, and during that time, uh, my husband had um, kind of a, a sort of bizarre series of episodes of intense anxiety, um, and it had a lot to do with, I mean, basically it seemed as though he was experiencing in this really intense existential way the ramifications of nihilism, and it awakened in him this sense of how essential it is to have meaning and to have hope and a kind of faith in one's life. Um, and he responded to that um, by, by beginning to pray more, by having some kind of spiritual practices that he took on. Um, we now go um, to mass together every Sunday as a family. He has more, I think even more of a leadership role in our, in our home in terms of, initiating prayer and that sort of thing. He like sings in the choir <laughs> at mass now. And, um, you know, he's not, he's not Catholic and it's still very much something he's trying to figure out, you know, like, um, but he has an intense, I think, desire for faith and is praying for it. And it's, it's this interesting kind of, it's interesting to watch this unfold. You know, I have, I have a sense of peace about it, I guess. Um, but when it first started, when it, when it last, last year, when this started happening, you know, I thought, Oh my gosh, this is it. You know, he's going to just boom convert, you know, he's going to like have this intense experience. Like he's going to go to mass and like the angels will descend and he'll hear the voice of God. And you know, it'll just happen like that. Like, I think I still had this, kind of evangelical sensibility about these things, right? Like he's just going to get zapped by God and that'll take care of it. Um, and so for me, I've had to really learn to be, to be patient and to, to realize that this is not about me. It's about, you know, it's really about Michael and God and it's going to happen in its own time. But it is really remarkable to see, what God has been doing in his heart just in the past year, you know, it's, it's been really hard, but, um, you know, when he was going through this, this anxiety, it was totally debilitating and, and we just had a baby. And so it was a very difficult time. 
but, um, but that's how God works, right? I mean, that's God works through our suffering. And oftentimes that's the only way he gets us to really listen and to be open to him as much as I, you know, we, we don't want to, don't want that to be true. I think, um, that's often how God calls us to himself is through suffering. So anyway, that's kind of what's been going on. <laughs> oh, it's great to hear. Yeah. But I mean, it really is faith or nihilism. I think there, there's yeah. a kind of, mm-hmm. there's a kind of mealy mouth, soft nihilism in our culture. That's, <clears throat> I mean, what it is really is kind of Camus for dumb people. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's, uh, you must imagine Sisyphus happy. Well, there's no meaning, but you can probably have a good time and you can make meaning. And I, I just think ultimately that's hollow. Oh, I mean, at the end of his life, Camus wanted to be baptized, and I, 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 I find mm. that I find that fascinating. So I, I think yeah. the fact that your the fact that your husband is kind of wrestling with the ramifications of nihilism that that yeah. strikes me as what all of us have to do in the modern age, because nihilism is the yes. great alternative philosophy. Yeah, and I think what what you just described as is pretty much sort of a paraphrase of things I've heard Michael say in recent months, you know, that he's sort of realizing that the kind of, you know, existentialist meaning making kind of perspective he had, it really is just, it's just a form of nihilism, you know, down deep. Like that's not real meaning, you know, if you're just generating it yourself, that's not real meaning. Yeah. So I think you're exactly right. It really is. Those are kind of the two basic choices. I've been steering the conversation so far, but in the spirit of hospitality here on Christian Humanist Profiles, we'd like to give our guests the final word. What haven't we said here that you'd like our listeners to know? Oh, oh man. This is like the most job interviews, you know, where they say, okay, now what questions do you have for us? And you're like, you've got to have something or else you're going to sound like an idiot. Oh, and you don't want to ask the wrong question either. (laughs) Um, Hmm. Let's see. What did you say? What was it? What do I want your listeners to know? Uh-huh. Well, I guess one thing I would say um, is that, you know, kind of strangely enough, in becoming Catholic, it's also in a way kind of reconciled me to my evangelical upbringing in a way that's been surprising and kind of lovely um, because it, it doesn't in a way it kind of feels something like a homecoming because I feel like I've returned to a kind of faith that maybe I last felt as a child when I just had this very kind of sincere and deep sense of Christ and um, a desire to belong to him and to, you know, give him my heart. And, and so I think in returning to Catholicism, it's been, it's not as though I've moved even further away from evangelicalism. It's been kind of a homecoming in a way. Like I, I feel that the seeds that were planted there have kind of come to fruition in an interesting way. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think again about O'Connor, who's, you know, the Southern Catholic, but all of her heroic characters are fundamentalist Protestants. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how many Catholic writers, their Catholic characters are kind of terrible. (laughs) <laughs> that's something I've been noticing. You know, like Muriel Spark is a good example. I was going to say Muriel Spark. Uh-huh. The and more Catholic you are in a, a Muriel Spark novel, the more the, the more awful you are. Right, which I, I, you know, I kind of appreciate that because I do find myself this, maybe it's kind of a puritanical, you know, sensibility that I'm still kind of carrying over from my Protestant upbringing. But, you know, there's this, 
the sort of expectation that, you know, that God's people will be pure and holy and well, where it turns out we're a bunch of sinners, you know, in need of grace. So I find that to be a comforting sometimes reminder in Catholic writers that, you know, Catholics are kind of a crazy lot. Well, we've been talking to Abigail Ryan Favale. Her book, Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion, is available now from, I said Whippenstock, but I'm looking on the back now and it says Cascade, which must be an imprint. Either way, exactly. you, yep, can, you can get it from them. There'll be a link to, uh, to buy it on our show notes at christianhumanist.org. Thanks for coming on the show, Abigail. Yeah, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.